Hi, my name is Jamie Lynch, and you are listening to Eating Habits, my podcast about everything restaurants. I will explore the human element of the hospitality business, and I'll talk to the who's who in restaurants, explore their stories, and hear what's on their minds in the ever-changing landscape of the food and beverage industry. Hey, everyone. My name is Bill Smith, and I am the retired chef uh, at Crook's Corner uh, Restaurant in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, and you are listening to Eating Habits. Thanks for joining us. It's super great to meet you. I can't wait to hear your story. Like I said, before we started recording, when I moved down to North Carolina in 2002, I had already you know, heard of you. You definitely have already solidified a name for yourself in the South, in the hospitality industry. And um, I've known about you since then, and I was really excited to speak to you. So um, thanks. Well, thank you. Yeah, thank you. So for our listeners, tell us a little bit about Bill Smith. Like, where did it all start? You are a true North Carolinian. I am. I, I, I was born and grew up in a town called New Bern down on the coast and actually pretty much lived there until I was 18 when I came to, to Chapel Hill to go to UNC. Never crossed my mind to be a professional chef. It's a long story, but essentially I was a bad student, but I started a music club called The, Fat, the Cat's Cradle. And that sort of uh, took my attention off of um, <laughs> off of uh, studying, shall we say, but we were horrible business people. So I had to find uh, a day job to keep the club open. I ended up in a kitchen that was uh, where, where Bill Neal was the chef. At that time, he was uh, cooking French things. And I began to learn as I was getting sick of owning a club, I was beginning to understand and realize that that cooking actually suited me very well. So that got me started. I, I've had a good background because of I had grown up with good cooks. And without realizing it, I was getting you know, an appreciation of good food. And and one thing led to another. Bill and Morton, his wife, uh, divorced. He went down the street, started Crook's Corner. He unhappily passed away about five years after he died. They needed a chef down there, and they called me, and I moved down the street. And then I was there for 25 years. Wowzer. What about the, the early days in your youth? What, what about that situation set you up for this appreciation for good food? I mean, were you, were you, well, did you, I, did you I, hang I, out in the kitchen when you were young? Were you, you know, that kind of thing? Well, yes, yes and no. Um, my great grandmother was, was a fabulous cook, but she didn't like people bothering her in the kitchen. So I had to watch from a distance, <laughs> but, um, I can relate. Um, and she, my great grandmother on my mother's side, actually. Um, and she, uh, as was typical of the time, there were multi-generational families living in one house. And uh, the big meal of the day was lunch. And she would cook a giant lunch every day for everybody in the family that was anywhere nearby downtown at work. And they would come home for lunch every day. So that was what I, that was the thing I remember the most, although all her food was always good. Mm -hmm. The other thing was that we were um, Catholics. And so on Friday, we didn't. Uh, we weren't allowed to eat meat in those days. It was before Vatican II. And so we had lots and lots of seafood and we were on the coast. So that made sense. We would, probably would have had it anyway. But so that was sort of something that uh, was always on my mind and I, something I always looked forward to. But mainly it was just that I, my great grandmother particularly, but my grandmother and my aunts and stuff were fabulous cooks. And so it gave you the expectation that every time you sat down, everything was going to be really good. So I tried to carry that with me when I became a chef. You know, that I should, everybody should, first thing they should sit down and have a good meal. You know, that was, that was my first duty, not to, not to conduct a food class and not to, you know, <laughs> not to look for celebrity, but to make everybody sit down and have a good, a good dinner, have a good time with the people they came to eat with, you know, mm -hmm. and so that, that sort of governed how I worked. And I say it started long before I knew I was going to be doing this. So. What was the approach to, to food in your household? Was it like, I mean, obviously I, you know, I did, a, um, I was 
a part of a chef's field trip up to Oriental, North Carolina, um, a couple of weeks ago, maybe about a month ago. Oh, really? Why down the road? Yeah. And, and it was the first time I'd been up there, um, and Uh saw the area and I I did not realize how fertile, uh, an area it is being that close to the the coast, being in the Pamlico sound, having all that amazing seafood, plus just the um, fertility of the soil up there and stuff. Um, it was really eye opening. I'm curious if, you know, your experience early as a, as a youngster kind of reflected that in the food that you guys ate at home. Okay. Again, without realizing it at the time, Mm -hmm. but yes, uh, my father was actually a mail carrier down in Pamlico County. And so, uh, it was customary in those days that you would give gifts to your mailman all the time. So he was always coming home with bushels of oysters or, you know, bags full of tomatoes or what all this kind of stuff. So we ate very seasonally because the people were farmers down there. Often families were both. You had people who fished, but they also had a farm. So I grew up eating good seasonal food. You know, fish is seasonal also. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. fish come and go. Bluefish come twice a year. And, you know, there's a the trout season and, and crab season and, all, and oyster seasons and all that stuff. So, yeah, it, it, like I say, it, it, I was observing it without realizing that it was going to apply to me so, so, so importantly later on. It was just something I came to expect, you know, without thinking about it, without analyzing it. So, right. Was there ever a point when you started cooking that you realized, because um, you, well, you started cooking when, was it like in the 80s, 80s and 90s? Is that? Uh, I, I, went into, I went into the kitchen, I was in the late 70s. Okay. But I wasn't in charge of anything for several years. But, right. So but, you started as um. Well, let's let's talk about that a little bit. So, I started peeling potatoes. Is what yep. you know. I, I I was I was going to Europe, even though I had a club that wasn't making any money. I was I was going to Europe, and <laughs> my one of my roommates was the head waitress at the French restaurant. She said, "Well, I think they need somebody in the kitchen to peel potatoes and chop parsley and blah blah blah." So I went in and I took that job, and then when I got back, they they hired me back. And then at that point, it was when I began to say, oh, yeah, maybe you should do this. And, you know, uh, so I I learned on the job. I never went to any kind of school or anything. French technique is applicable to all kinds of cooking. Mm -hmm. So that was a good place to start, frankly. Uh, Again, I didn't realize it at the time, but I was just getting good training. That kitchen, uh, Bill and Morton were, um, they were Francophiles, but they weren't uh, chefs really. And so they were sort of, they learned, they knew the food and they knew the, the vibe and the culture and everything, but they didn't always know how to do all the things that they wanted to make. And so we, we would work with like Julia Child in one hand, you know, and go, okay, she says, you know, that kind of thing. <laughs> and so it was really fun. It was almost like a, a, an, an experimental kitchen in some ways. Right. And we, we learned as we went all together, you yeah. know, but they were better than me, but but still, you know, I, and we were learned by doing sort of. In the early days, did you guys, how did you approach, you know, provisioning the kitchen to to cook this kind of, French cuisine. Do were you guys using local ingredients? Where was the the, the product coming from? That kind of thing. We, we used uh, local as much as was possible. Uh, the farmers market was just getting started. It's huge now, and all the people in the farmers market also supply restaurants. They deliver by trucks and stuff like this. It was just the beginning of those days, so we did that as much as we could. But it wasn't possible to do everything that way. Right. But we had a local fish market. We used a lot, and then there were some farmers that had that uh, would would come to the door. Uh, and so the market was just getting going and over the years now it's like the it's a great situation between restaurants and, and local farmers and produce we even have yeah. cheesemakers and you know fishmongers and all kinds of people that and, and and you know meat and all this stuff we didn't have at the beginning but yeah we have pretty yeah. much anything you it's very seasonal though which is what you want anyway so that's why you like it so yeah awesome did you realize or was it apparent to you 
when you started cooking the late seventies, early eighties, that there was, or was there a kind of disconnect between kind of the local food movement. There wasn't really much of a movement at that point, but like, you know, locality, local sourcing, that kind of thing. Was there, uh, was there kind of a disconnect between the restaurants and that type of, of cooking in those early days? Yeah, this was a small town south. It was a university town, so there's sort of a more sophisticated uh, dining public than you might find somewhere else. But, but you know, in those days, expensive meals dining out were because everybody was like, ooh, what's going on here? You know, I can make this for $3 at my house. So there was that to overcome to begin, you know, to, to begin with. But but like I said, there was also a, a public that was that was used to traveling and, and new things and and they uh, saw dining out as more than just dinner, you know, or whatever. It was like, you know, they understood that, that how it worked, but, but it, it was a small portion of the public at first there, there were, because it did cost more, you know, to, right. to do food like that way, you know, and, uh, but, but, uh, you know, it, it, now no one, you know, it never comes up hardly, you know, <laughs> it's kind of expected these days, right? It's, it's like, it, it seems like if you so, don't have some sort of locality on your menu, you're, you're missing the bus a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, I always tried, honestly, I, I, Part of being a chef is, is, as you know, is is uh, figuring out the money all the time too. And I always tried to like figure out ways to arrange the menu so that really expensive things could be a little less expensive, and 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 cheap things could be um, we could make them a little more expensive because people were expecting to pay more, and then um, so that it, you wouldn't go bankrupt coming to dinner too. You know, so right, yeah. So are you a bit of a celebrity there at the uh, the old Chapel Hill uh, food scene? I'm afraid so, and yeah. it's, I'm, I'm very suspicious of celebrity at this point. I, uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, yes, and so I try to use the celebrity to um, promote good causes. You know, I try, I, I do charity events and and things like that. It's so, to me, after a while, I get sort of silly, frankly. And um, but it's okay, whatever. You know, I use it. I, I, I do a lot of work with immigration. I do voter registration. I do, you know, all, all kinds of things. So yeah. Fundraisers that that museum at, at Harker's Island down near where you were that was badly damaged in a hurricane a few years ago. We did a big fundraiser for them. We were able to get them a lot of money. Did a thing for Table a few weeks ago, which is uh, food for in the school for kids. Got a bunch of money for that. So I, I try to use it in that way. You know, beautiful. You were kind of known for being an advocate for uh, workers' rights and stuff like that. I mean, there's quite a bit of documented uh, stuff about you. Um, you know. Yeah. I've raised some hell. I'm yeah. Afraid, yeah. Yeah. Let's talk about that a little bit. I find that super interesting. Like what, what, why was that so important to you and where did this fiery kind of uh, rebel streak come from? <laughs> um, that, that runs in the family. I'm afraid it goes back to my great, 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 great grandmother who was an abolitionist in North Carolina of all things. Mm -hmm. But anyway, so the, the thing with my, with my kitchen staff was that in the nineties here in North Carolina, um, you, there was nobody to work and it was before 9-11, so no one had any bad feelings about immigrants. And so people came back and forth, mainly from Mexico all the time. And next thing I knew, my kitchen was half Mexican and they were my buddies. And then after, uh, I guess after 9-11, things began to change and, and it became really hateful toward them. And I just felt the need to jump in there and defend them however I could. And uh, that's just what I've done. It, 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 like I said, they're my best friends. I go down and see the, the guys that have gone home. I go back at least once a year to visit and just hang out, you know. Mm -hmm. Because they meant so much to me, and I don't know. We just we, it's a weird thing that we clicked. You know, somehow we have nothing in common. I'm twice as old as any of them. You know, but yeah, um, they're among my very best friends, the people I, I love the most. So I just decided to jump in whenever I saw that I could. You know, mm -hmm. and uh, 
it was everything from getting passports for the children who had been born here to, I don't know, scaring up lawyers if we needed them. It was just all kinds of stuff. It, it, everything, it was everything different. You know, there, there was a million different problems that, and they continued to show up actually uh, medical expenses, you know, all, all kinds of things. So I did some fundraisers for that and uh, people were very generous, particularly people in the restaurant world, in the food world, in the food writing world came forward with lots of money when we needed it. Uh, after the pandemic, everything shut down. All these people were thrown out of work. Nobody had any, you know, could, couldn't pay their rent. Nobody had any food and, and people, you know, it was it was remarkable how generous people were when when we needed it. So, yeah. I just sort of coordinated that. But like I said they were my, they're my buddies. I didn't know what else to do. You know, yeah. what am I supposed to do? <laughs> do you still keep in touch with it? You you retired when two thousand nineteen, is that right? Nineteen, yes. Do you yes. still keep in touch with? The, is it the same team um, at Crook's Corner uh, from from when you left? Or? Well, it closed. Oh, it's closed no, they, now. They closed because of the pandemic. They haven't reopened. They're trying to reopen. There's a skeleton crew in there just to keep the building in order. Mm-hmm. And we've been doing pop-ups this summer. We did Honeysuckle Sorbet. And we did that stupid Atlantic Beach pie thing that's about to drive me crazy. And we're getting ready to do <laughs> uh, a blackberry sherbet because it's blackberry season. So, um, so they've been doing these pop-ups to keep themselves in the public mind. But the building was old. And uh, it was a very complicated thing where the... Uh, they bought the building and the management, the ownership of the business changed right when all the money went away, when everything closed. And so, you know, it's, it's turned into sort of a mess. And I'm happy to say that I wasn't there to have to unwind that. So it isn't very gracious. But um, but I am trying to help them along without getting back in there. I'm not going to be in charge. I'm not going to be the chef. I'm too old. I'm 73, for God's sake. So my knees won't do it. So um, I'll help them out as best I can. And, and that means we've been doing these pop-ups all summer of, of favorite desserts. And so I'll keep doing that. I, and while I'm here, I go to Mexico a lot. I'm getting ready to go in a couple of weeks. I, I lead tours in Oaxaca now. It's my second career. So, Oh, nice. <laughs> yeah. Well, t- tell me about Sorry. that. What, what is that? Is, is that derived from your affection with your team and, and kind of sort of, or have you, or have you always yeah. been a fan of Mexico? What's where, no, I didn't know a soul from Mexico until I was probably 40. You know, no, um, it, it's sort of indirectly because of that. I, I happen to have a friend who owns a hotel in downtown Oaxaca. And she's about, she and I are about the same age. And she decided that wouldn't it be fun to do these tours. And it turned out it was. So we just started doing them. But I do have staff members from Oaxaca as well. So, you know. Yeah. What, and, what, uh, what are those, this, sorry, what are those tours like? What is, what is that? We do a little bit of everything. She's, she's lived there for 35 years. So she knows lots of people, lots of artisans and craftspeople and stuff. So we go visit them. Uh, there's an, uh, there's a uh, uh, a mezcal distiller that's 90 years old that she knows. We always go to see him. Where there's a lot of like sort of cool new edgy restaurants and, and a lot of uh, sort of traditional old famous restaurants in the city. We go to those. Uh, we go to the there's ruins. We go climb around in Monte Alban one morning. Um, we, we leave some free time in the city's beautiful. It's full of art museums and it's very old and pretty and. So we leave time for people to wander around on their own. And then um, but we, we eat a lot, a whole lot, much more than I do ordinarily. And we travel out into the countryside to visit weavers and potters and candle makers and the mezcal guy and um, go to markets. They're fabulous markets, as you know, in Latin America, yeah, you may know. Yeah, yeah. Know, but yeah it's, it, they're, they're shockingly fabulous. And so <laughs> we spend a lot of time in the markets and um, it's it, each tour varies a little bit depending on the time of year and stuff. But and there's only about 10 people and they're 10 days long and we stay at Jane's hotel and, and it's really great. It's really fun. Yeah. It sounds awesome. Especially the part about the markets. I mean, one thing that I've, that, that I loved about being out of the country is that most cultures other than ours are, are way more connected to their food uh, system than we are, you know, as uh-huh. Americans, yeah. you know, with the grocery store thing and like, you know, 
you know, the super Walmarts and stuff like you could just find food, you know, yeah. in, in these, in these giant strip malls where, you know, in other cultures, like people actually make a trip, you know, you go to the market, you pick out every day. Yeah. It's, <laughs> it, it's just an awesome way to go um, and to approach food for sure. Yeah. I want to talk a little bit about, I want to get back a little bit to the early stuff. Okay. I'm, I'm this attraction to the arts and you know, how that kind of carried over to your cooking. And once you became a leader um, of your own team, I guess that was at Crook's Corner is kind of when you had your first yeah. uh, leadership gig. Um, you know, did that carry yeah. over into the the mentality of your crew? Did you guys have music in the kitchen? That kind oh, of yeah. thing. <laughs> we did indeed. Um, I, like I said, I owned a rock club and, and it was, but here at, this is there's lots of indie rock things here. It's not it's not top forty. It's not greatest hits music. We have a great radio station here too called WXYC, which is the student radio station. Which is like you never know what you're going to hear. Probably you've never heard of it before. It might be like a chainsaw followed by Frank Sinatra. You know you, you don't even know. So anyway, I, that's the kind of I love that because. But when the when the guys in the kitchen came, I had a rule: when, whoever was working got to pick the radio station. So of course we went to the Latino stations at night. Well, because by then my whole line was were Mexican guys pretty much. And they would, they would like sing and dance and cook. And I loved it. Mm-hmm. So yeah. w- what's your favorite music to cook to? If, if you, if you oh, were, Lord. if you were working in the past and you got to control the, the music box, what was the, uh, uh-huh. what would be on there? Well, like I said, we have such good radio. It would depend on the station and the DJ that day. Gotcha. You know, um, we have a great jazz station here and at home, I listen to that a lot more than I would have imagined because I got so sick of the news the news was driving me wild, and, and I, I would listen to NPR in the morning, and, and also one day I said, I can't take this anymore. This is about, about 2020, and I've had enough of this. So there's a jazz station over at Central, which is fabulous, and the DJs are great. And then I go back and forth to XYC, which is the, the student station that I, that I was mentioning. I'm on the board of that, actually, because they needed uh, citizens who weren't um, affiliated with the university. The, the law requires a certain number of people on the board that, that don't have any any you know, any, anything to do with the station side. So I listen to them a lot. And then I go to the cradle still, it's still going. I, we sold it in 84. So I go to hear our music. So I don't know. I, I like all kinds of stuff. I, it would be hard to pick. Yeah. Oh, and there's an Afri- I love African music. So uh, there's on Sunday afternoon, there's this African music show that's out of this world. So nice. <laughs> awesome. So you kind of, you get, you started cooking later and I'm curious how your style and the cuisine at Crook's Corner kind of changed or evolved um, when you kind of got a chance to express your own cooking voice. Uh, when you weren't just like learning from somebody else or following, you know, direction and you actually yeah. got, got a chance to, to lead the team. What, you know, what interests you at that time? What was kind of your focus, your ethos behind your cooking and, and how did it kind of evolved at Crook's well, Corner? Well, um, yeah, I, um, it was Southern. Crooks was a Southern restaurant, and I grew up in, in the South, in Eastern North Carolina. So I think slowly the food of Eastern North Carolina that I grew up with was sort of insinuated into that menu. But I, I didn't bother the skeleton of the menu. There was nothing wrong with it. There were lots of things that Bill had known from South Carolina. He was from uh, Upper South Carolina. So, But I began bringing in more and more of the things I knew just because of what I knew, and I liked them, and I knew, knew that they were good. And then all these having all these Mexican guys in the kitchen, uh, we began, next thing we knew, little bits and pieces of Mexican cooking kept sort of insinuating itself. You know, but not, I didn't turn it into a Mexican restaurant, but we switched from hominy to pozole because it's better hominy. And then people uh, developed tastes for spicier and spicier food. So we, we did that. You know, we, things would become 
more highly seasoned sometime. And then we did, uh, we introduced things too that I'd learned from these guys when they, they would cook their own lunches and things. And, and so I thought, oh God, that stuff's great. So I figured out a way to make it Southern and put it on the menu. So it just, it was, a, it was an ongoing thing. I didn't really, I wasn't really even conscious of it. We just, you wanted to, to keep things that people liked, but you also wanted to introduce new things to them as, as, as it made sense. So that was, you know, say, well, it wasn't like a, a, I didn't set out as a plan with that, but I just, it just was the way things worked. Yeah. Kitchens are like, they're ongoing. You know that it's like, there's no beginning and end. You, once you, you know, there's always a stock pot and that's for down the road. And there's always, you know, you, you try not to waste anything. If you're how to roast chicken, turns into chicken salad, blah, blah, blah. So it's the same sort of, same mentality sort of, you know, you just sort of go day by day and, and you don't, you don't segment it very much. So that that's the way I, I did the menu as well. Yeah. Were you able to um, improve your business acumen as you uh, started managing the kitchen? I know you said that you you weren't much of a a business leader or manager when you uh, when you guys had the cat's cradle, but but as you started developing as a chef, were you able to to kind of hone in? That's always been the worst part of the the gig for me. No, that is that yeah yeah well clearly I did because we didn't go broke yeah but um but it, it took some learning but I had to pay more attention and by then though I'd I'd learned how. A little better too, you know. Again, like you learn as you go, and that was one of the things you learned because you had. And I saw the numbers every day. I wrote the checks. I did the ordering. Yeah, I, I was I was better, and it wasn't. I also there was I wasn't the owner. I, I was merely an employee. So there was a boss looking over my shoulder that sort of kept things in line too. And he'd come in and say, "Listen, your numbers are horrible. You need to do something." And then I would know how to do something. You know, I could figure out what to do. It wasn't, you know, so. Yeah. But mostly we had good numbers. Mostly we had good numbers, honestly, yeah. most of the time. Did did you have people kind of helping you and teach you along the way? Or um, were you kind of having to figure out a lot of this stuff on your own? You mean the money? Yeah, yeah, the business side of oh, things. Oh, no, like, no, 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 I had to figure it out as I went. Yeah. There was no accountant at my side. So. <laughs> right, saying, hey, you got to work on this, got to work on that kind of thing. Yeah. I mean, I would, I would hear from the top, but it wasn't, there was no advice. It was just like, you know, figure right. it out. I gotcha. <laughs> yeah, yeah. James Beard. You got nominated yeah. for a couple James Beard. Two or three years in a row, yeah. Yeah, was that 2010? Is that right? Around there, yeah. Around yeah. So you had been the chef at Crook's Corner since uh 91 is that right 93 93 93 yeah so so you've been um chugging along really pushing the southern southern food to the forefront at that time did you notice that southern food started to become more of a relevant cuisine yeah it's, I, yeah i sort of compare it to southern authors you know it's like a it's, it's a genre and it comes, it comes in and out of fashion, but yeah, it, it did certainly. Yeah. Um, and it was an, you know, it's an interesting cuisine. And, and that was one good thing that Bill knew, Bill Neal realized, he said that was, it was a, it was a cuisine worth celebrating. It, it wasn't the cooking of the Beverly Hillbillies, you know, it was like, there was right. good food that people, you know what I mean? So yeah, sure. And what do you, what do you think is, is important about Southern? Because I agree with you. Um, I actually had zero kind of experience or knowledge of Southern food uh, before I moved to Charlotte in 2002. I was, you know, I, I trained in New York in French restaurants and that was kind of my, my wheelhouse. Um, and I, it really opened my eyes when I moved to the South, um, and started to, to be, ex, you know, exposed to some of this Southern cooking. Um, and I've definitely adopted a lot of 
a lot of it over the years and my, my, my style has changed and it's not Southern by any stretch, but there's definitely influence there. Um, what about Southern food to you is important to preserve? Whew, let's see. Well, I, anything that's good to eat is worth preserving. I, I don't think you need to necessarily label it Southern or not. Um, mm-hmm. I like the seasonality of it. I think, I think because it just, because we have still a lot of agriculture here, that that's something that, that that's certainly worth preserving. That's spread everywhere at this point. I think. I don't know. And I think that you know the the history and traditions of the food is interesting. Uh-huh. But mainly, I like I said earlier on, it's the main thing is to sit down to a good dinner. You know, and right. and not, and don't overanalyze it. You know. <laughs> mm-hmm. Totally. I mean, I think that's kind of like the backbone of of hospitality, right? Is sitting around a, sure. a, a table sure with yeah. a, a good meal and and kind of nourish yourself. Yeah. Exactly. That's the whole the whole reason to do it, I think. You know. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I agree with you there. You've been at this for a long time. You retired a few years back. You mentioned that you're still doing some pop-ups and, and some other charity events and things like that. Do you plan to continue to do that kind of work? Yeah. You know, the, the pandemic sort of knocked all that out of the water for a year and a half. And I sort of got out of practice. And I came back in lately and found that I, I was, in fact, out of practice. And also, it wore me out more than I was prepared for. So I'm going to have to be a little more... I shouldn't do things. What I did was I did something, a, a big dinner one night, and then the next day I did a lunch for 300 people. And I thought, you are too old to do this kind of thing anymore. I used to do crap like that all the time. And, you know, you look back and, and you say, you know, how did you even do that? You know, I mean, even when I was younger, you, you'd have to cook for 300 people in a field, you know, with an extension cord and a card table or whatever. And then and you do it, and then um, you'd sort of pat yourself on the back, and then you think, what? Have you lost your mind? Don't say that you're going to do that anymore, but then you do. Right. So anyway, I think I finally learned not to just say yes all the time now. Gotcha. <laughs> but yes, I would, of course, why would I not? You know, I, I, I try to be a good citizen, and I, and I know that I can... I can help folks out and, and, you know, it's sort of, you know, it's sort of flattering to be asked, but you need to learn what's reasonable. And you also have to learn not to show off. That's another thing I've learned in, in my, in my old age is that again, you know, give them a good supper. Don't try to, you know, it's not a floor show. It's like, it's dinner, you know? So. Do, do you have a, a, do you have an example of a time that maybe you uh, tried to show off a little bit and it kind of backfired on you? Well, it did. I know we always we always did it, but just uh, people would suggest they'd say, "Oh, we had blah, we heard blah blah blah," and you'd think, "Oh, I can do that." And then you think, "Oh, great, good idea." That one time it was like confit duck for ten million people in a field with a card table and uh, like a hot box and uh, what was it like an element, you know, like a plug-in hot pe- hot plate, yeah, yeah. you know, to keep the sauce and the sauce kept boiling over and soaking the tablecloth, and where it was dark. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody the brought a flashlight. And, well, they were like sort of lights, you know, but they weren't. Uh, yeah, I don't know. It was. Uh, they, I always think of that. I, I'm not going to name names because it involved friends of mine. But um, <laughs> that was like the craziest thing ever. ever. And, I, and everybody said, "Oh, this is the best thing in the world. This food's so delicious. I don't know how you do it." And I, thought, I don't know how I do it either. And, but that was that. And, <laughs> so there, you know, that's. Hopefully, I'm, I'm falling fall for that again. So. <laughs> <laughs> that's funny. What about the kitchen life? Um, kind of spoke to you like what was um, it what was it about like being in the kitchen and and attracted you to to this kind of work well I think I might have run my kitchen differently than other people because I didn't ever make anybody behave and I didn't make them um call me chef or anything like that and they were they were not uh above putting ice down the back of my underpants and stuff you know and I sort of liked that yeah and uh, <laughs> I did it as a um 
I don't know. I just I saw it as a team rather than me, the boss of all these guys. Mm-hmm. And like I said, I didn't make anybody behave. So as long as the food went on like it was supposed to, if they wanted to wrestle between runs, I don't care. You know, and but a lot of people that would drive a lot of people crazy. I know in this business, so that was just <laughs> the way I did it because uh, it made them unemployable when I was gone. But <laughs> whatever. Yeah. yeah, it just it worked for us. You know, I, I saw it as a. It was, um, I don't know. It was almost like we were playing in a way, but see, but we had to do our work like we were supposed to. But, yeah. but, um, you know what I mean? I, I say, but I, I, know, I don't know any other chefs, honestly, that that would have put up with what I did and enjoyed it <laughs> as well. Did you ever instigate this kind of behavior? Was that part of your? Probably, yeah, yeah probably. I, I'm, I'm, I'm sure I did. I. Uh... <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> I would put Tabasco in someone's coffee when they weren't looking. Yes. So. <laughs> Guilty. Guilty as charged. Yeah. I'm curious if there's any particular um, meals or or guests that you've cooked for over the years that really stick out as like a high point, like something that you like remember and kind of like have a memory or cherish, like, you know, a particular service or, or cooking at a place or or an event that that really stuck out for you as being a, a winner. Yeah, actually, I think maybe our finest hour was when uh, um, we went down to Oxford, Mississippi to, to cook the opening night party for one of the sim- symposiums at the Southern Foodways Alliance. And I took my guys with me and my sisters came too. And we, they wanted, uh, what did they call it? Uh, uh, Nueva, North Carolina. They wanted uh, uh, examples of how Mexican food had insinuated itself into the, 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 the cooking of North Carolina. So we did all kinds of things. It was for like 500 people and we had a couple of days to do it. And my guys were great, and we had a big time, and 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 I think that was that that was our that showed us at our finest, frankly. I mean, you know, we we did lots of things at, at the restaurant too, but for some reason, that to me always stands out. I always think back fondly of that. And I'm so proud of everybody because it was you know it was hard to go that far away from your kitchen and you don't know where anything is, you don't know what you know all this stuff. But they did great. It was it was fantastic, and it was well received. How did you guys? And the opening night party of that thing is always really fun because everybody's been away for, we haven't seen each other for a year. And it's like this fabulous cocktail party. And so everybody's really in a mood, in the, you know, mood for good food and, and conversation and stuff. So it was, it was quite, uh, quite flattering to even have been asked to do that. So that, that was our biggie, I think, of all my years there. That's awesome. What did you guys cook for that event? Oh, God, all kinds of stuff. We had tamales and we had, um, we did sort of a, a pork shank pozole and we did um uh a mango salad with hot pepper with a cayenne pepper and mint and we did um gosh what else it was about five courses the the the, the dessert though was was uh, we did this thing this this sorbet that is based on popsicles in mexico which are full of candy so we did orange sorbet with red hot stirred into it and that really stopped the show people love that oh <laughs> that's interesting <laughs> no it's fabulous it's so good you can't believe it yeah that's awesome Looking at kind of the cuisine of the South or even just like cooking generally, do you have any thoughts about where you'd like to see things go, a direction that you kind of see things going? Is there any like, is there anything that kind of sticks out to you? Is there any concerns that you see or um, kind of like your, your current affairs overview of kind of like where you see the restaurant world right now? Do you have any well, views? Well, the on pandemic that? was a real yeah the pandemic was a real punch in the gut i mean uh, a lot of my friends did not reopen like i say crooks hasn't reopened yet they're still trying to and everybody has had to sit down and rethink everything um they had to think about how to look after themselves better how to look after their staffs better reconsider everything what's reasonable you know for what you know you probably know this too is that, that um 
that you were supposed to kill yourself every night you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> at work. I mean, it was just understood that you, it would be awful and hard and, you know, and, and you would never get enough rest or anything. I think that's all gone. That's all gone. Yeah. And I have a lot of friends who've been able to reopen who look at me sort of with envy and say, you were got out just in time. And I, and it's because they realize that they've just been exhausted and they've had to, they've altered their hours and they've, um, you know, uh, reconsider the way they run their kitchens and all kinds of stuff like that. So that's the main thing to think about now, not so much the menus. People at this point, at least around here, are open to pretty much anything on a menu. They sort of trust their their chef friends to come up with good food. And and so um, food trends, I don't see. I mean, new things come and go, but but people people here, everybody likes everything now. So, you know, it's it's just a matter of what you can think of and when you do it. Right. But the, the main thing that's happened in recent years is just that pandemic that just about finished people off. I mean, that was, yeah. you know, and they, you know, and their staff, nobody had any money and, 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 oh man, it was, and, and, you know, I, well, you know, as well as I do what it was like. So, yeah. um, a lot of people were hanging by a thread and like I said, a lot of people haven't opened. We have places here in town that did not reopen that were, that they were, that people were very fond of. So do you think that, um, in order for, restaurateurs or chefs or, or restaurants to be successful moving forward, they're going to have to address this, the, the worker um, environment, worker kind of situation. Yes, I do. Yeah. I don't know if you know Chapel Hill, but Dip's Country Kitchen is really famous. Miss Dip, she's passed away now, but she was, it was the soul food kitchens they used to call it. And she had, they have to close several days a week because they can't get enough employees. Mm. And, and it's because they can't afford to pay any more than what they pay. And so they have to be open less hours. I don't know how, I don't know how Springs, Springs is a good friend of mine. The, the, she's the daughter of, of, the, of the founder of that restaurant. Mm-hmm. And um, they're still trying to figure out what to do, you know, because they, you know, the, well, it's just, the, it's just the, the balance sheet, you know, things cost this much money and, and then <laughs> that's all the money you have. And so. Right. So yeah, and but but that kind of thing is important. I know I know three or four restaurants, Lantern, and Acme, and Glass Half Full here in town. Have have, have a, the first thing when you open the menu is that we've raised prices to do a livable wage, and then live, and in Chapel Hill, it's I think it's eighteen dollars an hour is considered a livable wage, and then some of them have just added to the prices, and other people have said it will be added to your check. So you see that first thing. So. The, the public has gone along with that, it looks like to me. Mm-hmm. People understand that. Now, this is a wealthy community. Whether that would be, we work someplace else, you know, in a working class town or something, I'm not sure. But this is, this is these people here can afford to do it. And they and probably uh, agree with the, the concept, at least, you know, even if they don't like the price. But right. um, but, but it is it is being instituted here. And, and it's been over a year now since those places have done it. It looks like it's going to stick. I think. Yeah, so. I think you're right. You know, I, I would have given any, all my, my staff all the money I had, you know, mm-hmm. if it was up to me. I, you know, sure. They earned they did a lot more than they made as far as I was concerned always. Yeah. Well, I think it's important to realize too is like, and, and uh, you know, I think chefs learn this pretty early on in their leadership usually is that, um, you know, you're only as good as your team. I mean, you know, Absolutely. it's like the chefs that are running these kitchens, it, you know, they might be the creative force or they might be the organizational drive behind the kitchen crew, but you know, it's the guys on the line grinding it out that are, Absolutely. you know, that are feeding the guests. So. Yeah. yeah. And you got to get in there with them too. You know, I, I was not above washing dishes, you know, if yeah. the dishwasher didn't show up, you know, just, you can't be the leader if you can't do that. About, 
I, I used to, like I said, I used to own a bar. So I, I, I was used to cleaning up nasty bathrooms. And so <laughs> I, before I made anybody else do it, sometimes I just, okay, just put on rubber gloves and go do it and shut up, you know? Yeah. So, cause you know, I felt like I shouldn't, you know, you know what I mean? You know? <laughs> totally. Yeah. Are, are you seeing people kind of return to normal in Chapel Hill as far as like their dining um, habits and stuff like that? Are people getting out? Are people anxious to get out and, and um, go to the restaurants and support the, the community there? Or is it kind of slow going, getting back to normal? It's sort of some of each. Most places are, are like I was in 411 West last night and, and Tommy, the owner, or one of the owners was there and he was saying, oh, we, we were really busy tonight. We were, you know, he was glad. He wasn't complaining. But they, they didn't, again, they were short staffed. And so some of the bartenders were having to wait on tables and stuff. But yeah, I think by and large, people are, there are still people who are skittish. But yeah, no, I, th I think people, well, people want to, you know, now, now they're saying there's another one coming, you know, there's a, some new variant that we don't know what, how it's going to play, play out. So right. um, I think it depends on your age and, and, and your health uh, as much as anything, but, but by and large people are out again, it looks like to me. Yeah. Did you ever experience being in Chapel Hill? It's a, it's a large university kind of community, a lot big college town. Does that affect the um, the restaurant business there, like the ebb and flow of of maybe servers and employees? Did you have a lot of turnover? Was that something that was just kind of normal, or um, did you find that you had kind of a stable crew that was always always there? Yeah, well, that's actually why I ended up with so many Mexican guys in the kitchen because the students would come and go, and the Mexicans wouldn't. They would they would learn their job. They would learn what you wanted them to do. Oh, usually they started as dishwashers and then they would be watching and somebody would, would quit and, and they'd raise their hand and say, well, listen, I, I've been watching, but I can do that. So, and they didn't go anywhere. So the, the guys that worked for me, I had guys that worked for me for 20 years. I had four or five guys, my, my core, the guys I took to Mississippi with me or the guys I took to cook at the Beard Foundation. Those guys have been with me forever. And I had peripheral students. So I didn't mind students. It's just that they wanted, you know, long holidays and they wanted weekends off and, you know, and they had to go to the beach, and, and which is fine. You know, I understand that. Who doesn't? You know, so that was cool. But I had this core of guys that uh, were the same. The, the wait staff at Crooks was the same way. There were four or five people that were that were were sort of full time and they'd been there for a long time. And they had other things going on. Like They, they might be artists or they might be, you know, whatever, writers, blah, blah, blah. And they needed an income. And this was a good income you know, for a certain amount of hours a week. And then that would give them time to do whatever else they did. So we had a core of those. And then that was sort of filled in. They filled in around the edges with, with people from, from students and stuff. Gotcha. And also I had occasionally um, in my kitchen, uh, rock and roll guys, people in bands, because they need a flexible schedule. And so they like, they like work hard and play hard and, and, um, and they're smart usually. And so uh, that was sort of a cool addition and they would come and go as well. That's kind of an interesting parallel, the, uh, the, the rock and roller musicians and, um, and the kitchen crew. I see some, um, some parallels to that kind of, would, did that have anything to do with, uh, your affection for the kitchen? Oh, well, yeah, sure. And I knew the guys because I know the bands, you know, yeah. you know, I, I knew both worlds. And so they would, it would be logical. They would say, oh, I need a couple hours somewhere. Do you have, can I come do whatever? And often the answer would be yes. And if it was, and then, then I'd, I'd take them on. So. Did you guys? And you can almost make bands around here too. That's another thing. It's like you can't quite support yourself, but you can come close, maybe. <laughs> right. If, you know, if you're a successful musician, so you, you know you need, but you need a flexible schedule as you go on tour and stuff. Right. So. You know. Did you find that the the kitchen community when you were coming up to be kind of a tight knit community? Did you guys like all hang out? The chefs from different restaurants. You guys go, you know, out to the bars and and 
you know, bullshit after service and that kind of thing? Or was it a little more competitive kind of market when you were? No, no, no. We were all really good friends and still are actually. And not just here in Chapel Hill, but all over. Yeah. Like I have friends in Durham and Raleigh too. We, we know we're all like sort of beloved colleagues, you know, I don't, you know, as long as the economy is doing pretty well, we're, we're not really competitors, I don't think, because people know this is a good area to come and have and have good food. And so one night you'll go one place, one night you'll go to another. But no, no, no. Um, we're, we're all very fond of each other, um, I think. Yeah, I really appreciate that about um, cooking in the South. It's one of the reasons that I stayed in the South when I moved down here. You know, I remember cooking in New York is, um, you know, it, it's pretty competitive cutthroat market up there you know the crews were like bands of pirates you know always trying to outdo <laughs> each other and stuff uh, but then moving down here like you know just the camaraderie amongst chefs and restaurant people no, it, no it's really true yeah it's very appealing that's awesome so what's next for you bill what are you what are you working on tours going down in, in mexico you got anything else kind of cooking on the back burner or something you're interested in doing well, I'm always writing. I'm, I'm, I've got an, I've, you can't see what my office, but I'm, I'm in my office, but I have like probably nine cookbooks piled up on my desk right this minute. If I just had the, you know, the gumption to get them together, I need to hire myself a new editor, I guess. But so there may be another cookbook. I was thinking about perhaps a memoir about my staff, actually, since we've been talking about them so much, it makes sense to, to mention that. But uh, I like to travel. I'm going I'm, to I'm keep doing these tours of Mexico. We did, this will be our third one this year. I think three is probably all we'll manage this year, but we're going to do a bunch next year too. And we do those every three or four months. And that's honestly, um, that's so lovely. I, it, it, it almost makes you lazy. It sounds like work, but it's just, <laughs> you just sit there and drink these fabulous mezcal margaritas and, <laughs> you know, in this pretty place. And so I'll be doing more of that and some more writing. I do a lot of magazine writing too. I've got, I've been, I've had things in uh, our state magazine, Garden and Gun. I've got a bunch of stuff in, in, um, and Southern living. So I, I do a lot of that too. I enjoy writing. I should do more of that. I just don't have very much discipline. I'm afraid. Yeah, <laughs> I can. I understand that. <laughs> what, what do you like to write? What, like what really interests you as far as, um, you know, when you sit down to, to put, put into paper, what do you, what interests you? Well, the, the things I write for magazines, they've come to me. They said, well, you, would you, this, you know about this, would you do this? And so it's food things, 100%. Like I said, the other thing I'm thinking, maybe a memoir, that seems sort of vain at times. I, I feel the need to talk about my my staff some more. So I, I think that's probably what I'll do next. I've never imagined writing fiction or novels or anything very much. And I wish I were a poet, but I'm not, so. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, awesome. Well, Bill, that's all I got for you today. Unless there's anything else you want to you want to talk about, I, I find it fascinating kind of all the stuff that you've done and, you know, the influence that you've kind of had on on Southern cuisine and and making it popular and strengthening the whole team dynamic and focusing on your crew has been an awesome inspiration and, and something that I've uh, I really appreciate. So I, you well, know, thank I, you. I've always considered myself very lucky. I mean, I've always I've always thought I was one of the luckiest people in the world because I've, you know, everything's sort of fallen my way and I sort of blunder forward without a plan, but I seem to, <laughs> I seem to manage. So I've always considered myself very fortunate. So I'm, I'm lucky to be where I am right now. Well, it's working out for you, man. So best of luck with that. <laughs> and um, yeah, if there's uh, if there's anything else, man, I appreciate your time. Thank you. Oh, no, thank you for inviting me. It's been, it's been nice talking to you. Thanks, Bill. All right. Adios. Bye-bye. Bye.